Welcome to Staying with the Trouble. I'm Bishop James Jones, and in this podcast series, I'll be focusing on issues of poverty and exclusion in the city of Leeds with some of the people who are staying with those troubles. My guest in this episode is the Reverend Dr. Carol Tomlin, a Pentecostal minister, educator, and carer. She recalls how her newfound Christianity fueled her passion for education and reflects on the work of tackling racism. Carol, it is lovely to meet you and it's great to have your contribution to this podcast that we're doing, which is looking at the troubles that face the city of Leeds now and in the future. And I just wondered whether you could tell me from your perspective what the troubles are, what the challenges are here in the city and in particular uh, where you yourself live. Okay. Um, I think the challenges are multifaceted. Um, There are challenges of poverty, even though Leeds has had quite significant regeneration. Um, There are challenges, obviously, associated with the pandemic. Um, That has been a major challenge. Um, There are challenges just in terms of individuals, I don't want to use the word normal, but getting back to a sort of um, a familiar routine of life. Um, Leeds is a multi-ethnic, multicultural, multiracial city, as as you're aware, and and there are challenges associated with that as well. Um, there are obviously, like a lot of cities, inner cities, there are challenges with education, and there seems to be a challenge for some groups in terms of employment. And you were born and bred here in the city in Chapel Town. Mm -hmm. And I just wonder how things have changed uh, in your lifetime. Okay. Well, I was born actually in Doncaster, South Yorkshire, but we moved to Leeds when I was seven. Um, So I then moved away to study um, and lived here, there and everywhere, Oxford, London and America. And I left when I was 18, back again at X number of years. Um, And I would say it has changed significantly, certainly in terms of the demographics. Um, When I was growing up, even in Chapel Town, where I have moved back because of my family, um, the demographics has changed. It was predominantly a Caribbean population population from St Kitts, Nevis and then Jamaica in that order. But now it's literally multicultural, multiracial, multiethnic. Um, so that has changed. Even and, and has that created any particular problems? It hasn't created within Chapel Town itself, where I live. There doesn't seem to be the tensions Now, in other parts of the city, there are tensions. Tell me about your childhood, uh, how you were brought up, what your family home was like. That's a lovely question. Um, My childhood was, if I can use the word, typical Jamaican windrush childhood. Um, My 
parents actually came to London, came to Doncaster, lived in a house, bought a house. Relatives came and shared the space because that was that happened in those days. Um, then my parents divorced um, and then we grew up with some poverty. Um, my mom, um, although she was bright, etc., um, didn't work for very long and um, she looked after us and we lived on the state. And when you say you experienced poverty... Mm. As a child, I mean, what does a child feel when they're poor? What What were you feeling that made you feel poor? That's a good question. I actually got burnt with a paraffin heater when I was young and I was in hospital for a whole year, the formative years, apparently. I was five. But I loved the hospital and the surroundings of St. James's and interacting with the adults. Um, weird, I know. Um, so I think going to the hospital even and having certain things at the hospital and not having them at home made me aware. But, you know, as a child, you're not that aware of being poor per se because poverty is not just about material it's about love it's about culture so there were other great things that offset the material so to speak but I was aware. As you grew up I know that education became a really important thing for you uh, just tell me about that. Oh. When I was at primary school, let me perhaps start from there if that's okay. I was born here, had a older teacher, she looked about 70 to me, but anyway, I don't know how old she was. Um, and I remember her saying, you West Indian children, um, uh, whatever she said, I can't remember the rest. You know, it was a negative comment that I do remember. And in my head, I felt she was singling us out. That's number one. Secondly, I thought, gosh, you know, I was born here. Um, my mum, you know, I'm Jamaican, but my, I was born here. Um, so I think perhaps my awareness in terms of race, especially, I think started from that. And I've had a couple of teachers not believing in my ability. Conversely, I had teachers who did, and it was those that did that spurred me on. One or two said, Carol, you're brilliant. So in my head, that spurred me on to academically achieve. And I think it's also given me a passion for education. I was actually involved in training teachers and would stress the importance of being positive to students, and I think even at an, perhaps even at an unconscious level, it was because of my experience. There's a quote that I've been sharing with people uh, from the novelist Graham Greene, who in a book called The Power and the Glory uh, says, there's always a moment in childhood when the door opens and lets the future in. Is that door called education in your life? Yes. Beautiful quote, that 
is the door that was opened for me um, and opened up a whole new world. Those teachers um, I shall treasure in my memory as long as I can and hopefully as long as I live. Tell me about your career from the time you left school because you had education in your heart. Um, where did that lead you? Okay, when I left school, I did my teacher training um, and at that point, I wanted to pursue a uh, career in academia even before I completed my first degree. I met a wonderful lady called Professor Viv Edwards. She um, was actually studying or researching on Creole, Caribbean Creoles and its effect on education. I contacted her and as they say, the rest is history. So after my first degree, I then did my MPhil in theology and then came back into sociolinguistics with Viv and then I became her PhD student. And what part did faith play in this progression through education? Faith played an enormous part. When I became a Christian as a teenager, I developed this insatiable appetite for reading and for education. I developed a discipline that I never had before. And how did the church mm -hmm. respond to this very clear aspiration that you had? Right. Okay, this is that's a quite an interesting question because in black Caribbean churches majority they're different from black African majority churches. So uh, that distinction is so critical. At the time, because in the African led churches, education, education, education is they live, breathe education. In the Caribbean churches, in theory, that's what they want their children to aspire to. That's why many came here, because they wanted to give, as you know, their children a good education. But they also felt that education sometimes, or too much of it, veered individuals away from the Lord. I think there was this ambivalence about the role of education. Did you find in the world of academia an acceptance of, of your vocation or were there times when you felt that you know people were resisting that? Um, I would say my first job at the University of East London, I was teaching independent study, yes, because that was quite a progressive school. But you could still see that there was some ambivalence about here was I, the only black woman in this white space. So although obviously the tutors had black and Asian students, having a colleague, there is a different dynamics. Um, the, there's something different going on. I had one person who was racist. And when I then brought it to the attention of the equality officer, it wasn't dealt with appropriately because it wasn't really dealt with at all. And then I had another incident, but that was more unconscious and 
what Victoria Shuwunumi, my the lead author of a book we've written, was more sophisticated racism. Well, what does it do to you inwardly, emotionally, <sighs> when you encounter racism? Sometimes it's overt, sometimes it's covert and implicit. How does it impact on your own psyche? That's a really good question. Now, can I give you an example? I was at a train station once with a friend of mine, and I think I heard someone say the N word. And um, I was like, no, he didn't say that. There was an older English woman who literally, because she, she could see that I was visibly upset, and um, she literally touched my arm and said, we're not all the same. I'll never forget that. She had the courage to come to me and say, I'm so sorry. Thankfully, we're not all the same. So how does it make me feel? I think I have learned to not internalise it, even though it evokes negative emotions. But, you know, even if we look at child Q. This was the story of a black female teenager. Black girl, um, teenager, who was strict searched and it's evoked some negative emotions. And I can say in the black community. And in you personally? Yes. Oh, yes. Um, like what emotions? When right. you... um, it evoked a sense of here we go again, individuals wanting to dehumanise black girls, just a complete feeling of injustice. When the footballer, and this was obviously not right, did something to his cat, the whole of the country was up in uproar. And I thought, here we are, a human being has experienced this. The whole country should be in uproar. Why isn't it in uproar? It's not an uproar because when we're discussing issues of race, it's usually the burden is on how does it make, obviously, the victim feel, and rightly so. But we also have to look at the perpetrator. If I can read something from a book by Robin D'Angelo, because I think this really encapsulates it quite well. Robin D'Angelo says, I remind my readers that I am addressing white people at the societal level. I have friends who are black and whom I love deeply. I do not have to suppress feelings of hatred and contempt. As I sit with them, I see their humanity. But on the macro level... I also recognise deep anti-black feelings that have been inculcated in me since childhood. These feelings surface immediately. In fact, before I can even think when I conceptualise black people in general, the sentiments arise when I pass black strangers on the street see stereotypical depictions of black people in the media and hear 
the thinly veiled warnings and jokes passed between white people. These are the deeper feelings that I need to be willing to examine. And I thought, praise the Lord, I'm Pentecostal. Thank you, (laughs) Jesus. Here is a woman that I know has encapsulated what I have always known intuitively. And this is why it operates on a number of levels. And you... Carol, have written your own book in which I think you are trying to help other people to navigate their way through racism. Can you tell me something about that and about the research that you've done? Okay. Um, The research that uh, Victoria, uh, Dr. Shubunumi, and I have done, it really came about through several conversations um, in terms of our own experiences, um, we felt that there wasn't hardly anything written about the management of racism and how to manage um, these encounters. And it's not just race for me, obviously, as a woman, it's also sexism. So we have focused on a number of strategies, um, for example, the importance of self-care, the importance of not absorbing racist encounters, but maintaining one's own dignity and composure. The other concept is, it's an African-American one, black tax, black tax, where a black person feels that they, and women women are the same, have to work twice as hard. (laughs) That's a burden. In these podcasts, uh, we've interviewed people like uh, Jamie Jones Buchanan. And uh, in some ways, listening to you, I feel there's a a resonance between the two of you. And there's a resilience uh, in both of you too. I wonder, as you look at the issues facing society, whether you have any faith in the politicians, in in political solutions to some of the problems that, that we've talked about. If in America there were no laws, when I lived in America in the South, I would still be sitting at the back of the bus. So clearly laws are pivotal because laws help us to regulate our behaviours. So politicians, politics, that plays a key role in our daily lives. Um, It's a starting point and a very good starting point. Can you tell me whether or not you sense that there is a racist element to the poverty that people are experiencing today. I think the impact of the pandemic on the black community. Um, Can you see a sort of racist differential at all, just where you live in Chapel Town? Um, Yes, I do. Um, It's interesting. Take the refuse collectors. My sister and I have contacted the local council endless times about the collection etc my sister said 
Carol, I've worked in Round Hay, for example, and there is no black bin liners full of rubbish on the streets, in the gardens, etc. So I think there is definitely a race element as well as a class element within that. If we look at COVID, for example, and again, we're told, and this is all documented, that many of the black nurses um, were at the front line because, again, they were not promoted. So everything is, it has a knock-on effect. And when you rang the council yeah. uh, over and over again and nothing's happened, I mean, what is it within these processes, within these structures, within these institutions that means that your streets don't get cleaned and the ones in Round Hay do? Money. I mean, the ones in Round Hay, they are paying, high, I presume, higher council taxes, number one. Individuals in Round Hay are possibly more vociferous, number two. So I think there are a number of of reasons as to why um, you have these structural forces that are then enacted in very everyday encounters. And do you think there is racism within the church in all its denominations? Where do we begin, Bishop? (laughs) Where do we begin, Bishop? I should be crying, not laughing. But. Yes, well, yeah, well, you know, some things, if you don't cry, if you don't laugh, you'll cry. Um, oh, where do we begin, Bishop? Unfortunately, and you know, you, historically, many of our encounters, many of the racism in church, it's because we're not aware of how the genesis of it. And my concern is as people of God we should be leading the way in saying God we're all made in the imago day and to really have a renewed mind as Romans chapter 1 verse 12 one of my favorite scriptures so that Yes, even at an unconscious level, yes, we've all, we may all have certain attitudes, views, etc. But bringing those, our humanity to God and saying, how can I be more like Jesus? Can I share with you two uh, ideas? Mm-hmm. Um, f- firstly, a story. <laughs> a black pastor uh, said to me that, when years ago he came over with the Windrush generation, um, his mum back in Jamaica had said to him, now when you get uh, to uh, England, uh, be sure to do three things. Um, Firstly, uh, find a church so you can say thank you to God. Uh, Secondly, find a post office so that you can write home and uh, and tell me that you've arrived safely. Uh, and thirdly, uh, find yourself a friend. And he paused and then said, I eventually found the post office. And that said something about the way the church in that day 
was unable to embrace the humanity of those that had come to work in this country. But the second is, and I'd love to hear your view on this, I've for some time thought that the cleansing of the temple was not a statement against capitalism, but a statement against racism. Because what people overlook is the full quotation, which is, my house shall be a house of prayer for all races, but you've made it a den of thieves. Now, we've concentrated on the den of thieves, but we've overlooked the central point, quoting from Isaiah and Jeremiah, that the temple should be a place, the church should be a place for all races. And, and when you think about it, the stalls that he overturned were set up in that part of the temple that was dedicated to people of other races who were not Jewish. So my house shall be a house of prayer for all races. The cleansing of the temple was Jesus' own statement against the racism that was endemic there. What's your own reflection on those two thoughts? Oh, wow. Um, I shall be using them. <laughs> um, I, I totally agree. Um, and I think it's interesting because my house shall be a place for all people, excluding individuals, however it's done, is an affront to God, I believe. Um, and this is the heart of the Father. Um, Jesus actually said, Lord, make them one as I am one. Um, and this is how the world will know that they are really my disciples. And so Jesus was addressing the religious class for their isms um, and rightly so. So I think that's a reference point, um, that particular text, it's a reference point. Um, I'm reminded of Professor Robert Beckford's um, bewitchment hypothesis. I'm not sure if um, you're familiar with that particular notion of the cleansing and I think both black and white people, because the races I'm, I'm talking about, because there are many apparently racisms in the plural, I think there has to be a cleansing um, of superior, inferior complexes. There has to be a cleansing. Tell me now about the Kingdom School of Theology. Um, You've devoted a lot of your life to this. Um, what makes you so committed to it? A desire to educate ministers who have reticence about theological education. Many of the ministers haven't had a very positive experience in some Anglican institutions that obviously do them the main training. Some have had obviously racist encounters. 
others don't feel the curriculum is one that they can relate to. So I wanted to provide a theological education for primarily those in the Pentecostal and charismatic traditions to enhance their ministerial practice. That is my purpose, aim. You're an academic, you're a carer, you hold these two things together. I just wonder what sustains you in and through uh, all that, that, that faces you today. In a nutshell, my relationship with Jesus Christ, that's the main sustainer. As a person, I tend to be pragmatic. I tend to be organised to the point of irritating to some people. A colleague of mine actually said, oh, Carol, I know that you can be anal, she said. I mean, she actually, I mean, we, just, we just laughed. I mean, we had that kind of a relationship. Um, so I think that helps. And my sister, who's, she's the main, I'm the co, um, she's super organised because she was a nurse as well. So I think, and we try to have a balance the Reverend Dr. Carol Tomlin. Thank you very much indeed. Thank you. Thank you, Bishop. Thank you. Staying with the Trouble is brought to you by the William Temple Foundation and Leeds Church Institute. The interviews were recorded at Chapel FM in Seacroft, the series was produced by Rosie Dawson.